being undercover can mean many things. It can be about feeling safe. It can be about feeling protected. It can be about digging and uncovering, our search for meaning, our investigation of what life is, our desire for seeing what is usually under the cover of normalcy. As the weather gets colder, it can be about keeping warm. We are a society that's undercover. This podcast is about lifting that cover and seeing what's underneath. the network of things and meanings that connects us and makes us human welcome back to the undercover podcast welcome to episode 4 of the undercover podcast and i'm your host sai shri ravi shankar our way of life has changed in ways we did not think possible and for some even more drastically than others the covid-19 pandemic has pushed us into our homes and into our heads forcing us to come up with ways to do things we may normally do except this time do them in ways we've never had to before is the curve flattening when will the lockdown end when will we get back to our normal lives as time goes by and as answers are still uncertain the society has found ways to reset and restart We'd love to hear your story or even just a quick thought on what we're all going through right now. You can leave us a message on 0390185005. Tell us how you are navigating this time of isolation. What are you thinking about? How you're feeling? What have you experienced? We'd love to include your message in a future podcast. If you're comfortable, leave a name and number so we can get back in touch. And head over to our Twitter at cover underscore podcast. DMS a video shows what your isolation looks like. Each of our episodes has its own theme, a way of looking around at what's happening through different lenses. This episode, our theme is resetting or restarting. And as we begin this new chapter of our lives, what does resetting or restarting mean? What does it mean to workers who have lost jobs? What does it mean to those who have lost their businesses? What does it mean to your parents or to your teachers? Our reporters have put together stories about how the Australian society is resetting or restarting in these uncertain times. We look at how sex workers are learning to adapt to COVID-19 restrictions, how small businesses have turned to producing masks and DIY templates, and on Australians on welfare payments and what comes next for them. But first up, Hundreds of thousands of Australians have had their jobs affected by the coronavirus, whether they are working less or from home or not at all. But for some, the coronavirus has made work busier, more stressful, even dangerous. If the coronavirus has made one thing clear, it's that essential jobs aren't always what we think they are. Like, for example, when many around the country thought the employees at our local Coles or Woolies wouldn't be allowed to work and supermarkets would shut down, we stockpiled toilet paper and tissues and hand sanitizer and pasta and, well, you get the idea. Just like our nurses, doctors and other frontline healthcare workers, supermarket employees are facing the potentially contagious public every day at work and they're providing us the things we need to survive. But many of these people are just young kids, maybe in their first ever part-time job and now they're balancing this essential work with their education, health, friendships and everything else that's changed because of this virus. That's a lot of responsibility for one person. 
So I want to know, what's it really like being a young essential worker in a global pandemic? My name's Ruby. I'm 19 and I work at Coles. For two years, Ruby's worked in service at her local Coles. A normal shift would be... Showing up, then going on a register most of the time and serving people on that register, normal things, just packing people's bags, having like friendly conversations with people. Now, of course, things are different. Until about two weeks ago, Ruby's store was constantly busy and she'd feel nervous and anxious before another shift. Customers were lining up against the food aisles to be served at a register, forming queues as long as the shop itself. The whole store was just crowded and it was busy and it was really... There was just a tension in the air and it was really uncomfortable to be in the store. But a crowded supermarket and enforced social distancing rules don't always work together. Then throw in fear of infection, empty shelves and general panic, and you've got a breeding ground for aggression and even abuse. There's that small amount, at least for my store, of customers that are in the abusive and mean category where... I don't know if it's because they're stressed, probably, or because they're frustrated about not getting supplies or the crowds or all the new rules, but they do take it out on us. And there's not much we can do to help them because we're just there trying our best. At Ruby's store, a customer threw a tin of baby formula at one of her co-workers, a 16-year-old girl. She did tell me that it really upset her and it was quite distressing And she's actually had a few abusive customers, which is unfair because she's one of the youngest people on the team. And Ruby's dealt with this same aggression herself from a customer complaining about the price of his items. He did all the name calling, like calling me stupid, saying this is ridiculous. And usually something like that wouldn't bug me too much. I'll just take a deep breath and move on. But because of all the panic buying and everything and all the stress, it really got to me and I just bawled my eyes out and I had to go back in the team room. And then, of course, there's the fear of coronavirus itself. Despite her best efforts... We're leaving the register and washing our hands every hour with soap and water. And every transaction, or at least we try to do it every transaction, we sanitise our hands. We're cleaning registers, like, every hour. Um, We just got um, screens put up. Ruby still worries about the possibility of transmission. I'm serving more people in an hour than anyone is seen in a week that is staying home. There's obviously a fear around that, um, but I just try not to think about it, to be honest. (laughs) But for Ruby and her co-workers, this is the best outcome for their jobs right now. They get to keep them. She's grateful to still have a job to show up to while the country faces the prospect of a 10% unemployment rate, according to Treasury. Like most of us, it's a sense of community and connection in an increasingly isolated world that keeps Ruby going. It's those friendly conversations she has with customers at the register or on-the-job support from her co-workers, like her manager, who spoke to the aggressive customer she served and had him calmly sent out by security. Over time, I've realised that the team I'm working with is really supportive and amazing and, and we've done lots of things to protect our staff and it's made me feel really safe. So coming into work now, knowing that I have such a supportive team that can back me up when something goes wrong, I probably feel more happy going to work now than I did before this all happened. And like the rest of us, this is all Ruby can hold on to until things go back to normal and the world can reset itself. 
She tells herself the same thing she tells her customers. We just have to say, I don't know, it's just, it's going to be a while, I think. That was Katie Martin for Undercover. As we just heard, retail workers, young and old, have been forced to work during the pandemic, sometimes with minimum protective equipment. They're putting their lives and safety at risk in order for the society to keep functioning. It shouldn't take much on our part to be kind to them. Speaking of protective equipment, face masks have quickly become a global symbol of COVID-19. Desperate to ward off any chance of contracting coronavirus, many of us have recently rushed to purchase and order face masks or even make face masks. Some unassuming companies have even started to help manufacture them. Here's Emma Sullivan helping us stop and think about how and why a face mask works. With the rise of coronavirus, there were a few unusual things people became desperate to buy. Toilet paper, hand sanitizer, and face masks were all of a sudden impossible to purchase online and in store. Now, in certain countries, such as Korea and Japan, face masks are already used in abundance. It helps protect people from pollen during hay fever season, and it's also used to stop the spread of illness, such as the common cold or influenza. Even with the recent influx in international visitors to Australia, before the outbreak of COVID-19, fashioning a mask was still a foreign concept to many local Aussies. Now, my parents have worked in the textile business for just over 20 years. Hi, I'm Tony Sullivan. I'm the managing director of Victorian Textiles, a little family business, so it's a husband and wife team. But uh, it's yeah, evolved and uh, we now sell right around the world, mostly in Australia, but we do sell internationally. Mostly uh, focused on home craft, patchwork and sewing industries. We have all of the, literally, the needles and the pins, the threads, um, all the waddings and battings that go inside quilts, and, of course, uh, thousands of fabrics. With so many businesses deemed non-essential or facing closure due to its downturn in revenue, Victorian Textiles managed to keep its door open. Since the outbreak of the COVID uh, virus, we um, have actually not been suffering. Um, A lot of people have started to complete projects at home. You know, they're keeping busy and while they keep busy, they need product um, to finish their, as I say, their projects or their quilts or whatever they might be doing. Um, and we have been called on. We started to see big fashion houses such as Prada, YSL and Gucci begin to accommodate this newfound demand of face masks. They utilised their huge factories and began to adapt their business. One evening, my parents came home from work and started telling me about how the government had approached them to help manufacture the filter that goes inside face masks. Yeah, well, a few weeks ago, um, we were approached by uh, the CSIRO um, because in Geelong, we have a manufacturing plant that makes uh, waddings, which are, you know, that's the filler that goes in quilts from all kinds of thicknesses. So the regular quilting type wadding and then the product that we actually use a lot of which is actually quite thin. Uh, It's only about two or three mil thick, but it's very similar to another product that we make for a company called Shepherd Filters. That product uh, was what caught the eye of the CSIRO, so they asked us to reproduce a variation on that. And uh, we've done two trials now to date. As many conversations between father and daughter go, at first this all went through one ear and out the other. But then it got me thinking, 
Why was this material so important for the function of the mask? If making one ourselves is going to help protect us, was it really necessary to be utilising something so complicated? This is when I asked Dad to get me in touch with Mike Taylor. Mike's the director of Dane Taylor Technologies and has invented Faro masks, which is specifically designed to help protect fireys. It just so happens that this mask can help filter out viruses too, just like COVID-19. I'm Mike Taylor. I'm the managing director of Dane Taylor Technologies, uh, which is a company I formed to um, manufacture and market the Fair Air Fire Mask, which is my invention. Mike's design is obviously very elite. N95 masks, those you often see tradies wear, that are domed and hollowed out, are made from polypropylene. Surgical masks are flat and usually rectangular in shape and is designed to protect the wearer from sprays, splashes and large particle droplets. Mike's masks uses alpaca hair. Alpaca is actually a specially made material which is electrostatic. With the way it's composed, it takes out 99.94% of particles down to 0.3 of a micron. Now 0.3 of a micron is the smallest the CSRO test to. That's about this, well, to give you an idea of particle sizes, the flu germ is about 0.43 micron. Asbestos is about five micron. So it takes all, out all asbestos, it takes out about 99.97% of flu. It takes out over 99.94% of tobacco smoke. In, in nature, alpaca doesn't have lanolin on it, like wool does to make it water resistant. And when wool is processed and all that lanolin's taken off, it actually absorbs water. The alpaca processed and everything, it is still water resistant. Now, a big thing about that was masks is in a medical scene, you would also then get germs transmitting through the fluid. But another thing is that if you get water moisture into an electrostatic filter, it, it breaks the electrostatic charge, so it doesn't work as well. There's a lot of confusing information out there at the moment regarding face masks. Some countries are making its use mandatory, where others are saying they won't help to halt the spread of the virus. Not everyone is going to have access to specialised masks, such as the one Mike makes. Are they going to help at all? It's not full protection. You've got to have a much higher level of protection than the 94 or 5%. Making your own masks at home, you know, a couple of layers of cotton cloth. It's like trying to stop a mosquito in your getting in your house and having your front door wide open. All it would do would stop a little bit of your germs going out onto other people if you've got it. Although a mask may not be preventing ourselves from contracting the virus, with its long incubation period, you never know who you might be protecting by wearing one yourself. We have seen how workers and businesses are adapting to the current conditions. An age-old industry that seems to have been forgotten is the sex work industry. With little support from the government, what are sex workers doing to survive? Bookings have dwindled for sex workers across the country but online ads show they're still at work, with some offering streaming services to avoid disease transmission. Abby Deeb explains how sex workers are doing it tough during the crisis. We all crave intimacy. Sometimes it's a hug after a long day, a reassuring conversation about workplace drama. For some, it's a visit to the brothel, but not anymore. How are sex workers resetting their careers under strict lockdown laws. 
I've worked in brothels as an independent sex worker and I'm trying to build an online following now that coronavirus has hit. That was a sex worker who prefers to remain anonymous. I had a friend voice her answers on her behalf. My access to the story was a jagged mountain climb. The gate was guarded by sex workers and organisations who feared media manipulation. This was a stark preface into the reality of stigma the industry has historically faced. Everyone is scrambling to find ways to pay for rent. My income vanished. And even though the brothel is closed, I'm amazed that some clients still want face-to-face appointments. It's hard because in Victoria, it's illegal to host a client at my house. The Emergency Support Fund for Sex Workers in Australia is a fundraising effort that has raised around $40,000. There's sweeping online support, but the government is reluctant to help during this pandemic. People don't think I have a real job, which affects how I'm treated during a crisis. If a majority of people don't think you deserve their help, then you probably won't get it. Enter a new player, OnlyFans. It's a streaming platform which has shot up to flaming success this year. Tips and tricks with OnlyFans. Oh, we are talking all about OnlyFans. OnlyFans. Yes, I have an OnlyFans. Yes, the link is in the bio. It now has around 18 million users worldwide and thousands of creators. Content ranges from suggestive selfies to hardcore porn and operates on paid monthly subscription and tipping. And the creators pocket 80% of the profits. Camming requires a big skill set. You need to market yourself, make people want to resubscribe to you or to tip you. You have to be consistent or you'll be drowned out. There's so many performers on there. People are stuck isolating at home, causing OnlyFans to spike in Google search frequency over the past 90 days, surging around 1 to 3 a.m. The term equalised with brothels on the 25th of March and OnlyFans has taken the lead since. Camming definitely has its pros and cons. It's a lot of work dealing with the algorithm. It's just hard to build a following big enough to support me, my rent, and bills in such a short amount of time. Moving from traditional sex work to the online sphere means that sex workers are moved out of physical harm's way. Workers are less exposed to coronavirus transmission and have more control over their pay, working hours and creativity. But for some, it's a choice of health versus anonymity. Every sex worker I know is so health conscious. You have to be, otherwise your clients won't trust you. People are scared of the coronavirus and they're cancelling bookings. Some workers can't do online work because they'll be in violent situations or homeless if their families find out. Sex work is an industry that will persist into the future, no matter what. I'm told plain and simple, sex work stigma is one of the most harmful parts of the job. For Anonymous, the dream is simple decriminalising their industry, improving their workplace safety, labour rights and access to justice, sex workers wouldn't sink in situations like COVID-19. That was Abby Deeb for Undercover. Before we move on to our next story, we at the Undercover podcast are just one of those thousands of journalists who have had to reset and restart their way of work. 
we have seen amazing journalists do some incredible work during these tough times. So as a bonus for our listeners, undercover reporter Tyson Whelan spoke to Harry Stevens, a graphics reporter from the Washington Post, about his famous story, why outbreaks like coronavirus spread exponentially and how to flatten the curve. Keep a lookout on our website for this exclusive interview. projections from the Reserve Bank have unemployment rates over 10%, many more Australians will find themselves on welfare payments to get by. These people are more than just a statistic. Aidan Dawkins has more on the human face of social security and what needs to come next. Today the government is announcing the doubling of the job seeker allowance, formerly known as Newstart through the introduction of a temporary coronavirus... That was Treasurer Josh Frydenberg last month, announcing after 25 years of no real-term increase to Social Security payments, they would be doubled. I was shocked with what they did all of a sudden because it's been brought up so often about what is your government going to do about Newstart and they'd avoid the question or they'd go on to something else and now, all of a sudden, Everyone's going to get $500. This is my friend's mum, Jane. Well, because I had six children, I've always sort of been in and out of Centrelink, even when I was working. Jane relies on the job seeker payments after being retrenched from her career. I worked at the Austin Hospital as a nurse at the repair, and they decided to close the nursing home down. Jane isn't the usual person we hear about accessing income support, but she is, in fact, a voice of the majority, Australians over 45 who outweigh those younger than them in both accessing the income support and the length of time in which they remain on it. They talk about New Start and, and Scott Morrison goes on about how it's only a short-term thing. He doesn't mention those people like me who were on it, left on it for years. Jane still has a few years until she's able to access the pension and so until then has to fulfil obligations to receive income support. I, I could go back to uni and study to upskill, but I was like 62 and I'd had enough of study. The deal was that I had to work 15 hours a week, although the government said I didn't have to start until the end of May. There was a Salvation Army op shop in Watsonia, and I think it was the day after I got the package that I finished work. I actually went straight down the street and said I wanted to work there and I started straight away as a volunteer. I just wanted to have a job, get up in the morning, go to work, even if, you know, I was doing a volunteer work and I really enjoyed Jane's doing Jane's story, it. like so there. many, isn't that simple. So I had a heart attack when I was in my late 40s, so I'm on medication. My husband, he's on a pension and he's had falls at home on his own. He doesn't eat properly. He's an insulin dependent person. He's on probably 21 to 26 prescriptions. Basically our food bill is about the same as our pharmaceutical bill. 
I've tried before to get a carer's allowance. It doesn't matter about the amount of money, but even just going out and leaving him all day. Jane also has to keep up with mortgage repayments on top of the cost of living. And while she could complain about her own circumstances, it's watching how other people struggle that forms her view of the system. It is really criminal. How can someone have a life and live on $250 a week? I look at people that I know who, you know, live really, really simple lives and they live on the, they don't have a partner who has a pension, like they live on 250 a week and it would be far worse than the way I'm, I'm very lucky. So you look at it like that. The increase came into effect last Monday, April the 27th. Those receiving income support will automatically see their payments increase by $550. That's the first thing I want to buy if I can have any money is to get a computer and to, to be online more and pay my bills and that will give me a lot more freedom too. So that's important, really important. Well, personal stories like Jane's give us a glimpse of the humanity and complexity behind the statistics. The real change happens in Canberra, where the decision to raise the rate lies in the hands of the government and the parliament. There, there's a growing, a growing group of young people who aren't being able to, weren't being able to engage uh, and find, you know, enough work. This is Senator Rachel Seaworth. She's the Green spokesperson for Family and Community Services. She's also the spokesperson of mental health, ageing and First Nations people. Across her portfolios, she's seen the importance of a strong safety net in alleviating poverty and the struggle of people's day-to-day -day lives. You've got a growing group of long-term unemployed who, you know, like over the age of 45, that if you're over the age of 45, there's a growing group stuck on Newstart who are suffering from age discrimination. Senator Seawert has been a leading and consistent voice of the campaign to raise the rate. I wanted to know how she thinks income support became such a stagnant political issue. Obviously, the Conservatives in particular have taken a, take this uh, punitive approach to uh, income support. And we've seen in the past, you know, when Tony Abbott came in and he had Joe Hockey, they were talking about lifters and leaners. So they, they really started reinforcing this negative, punitive attitude and trying to make it seem as if people are undeserving. You know, like I'm not trying to be too bashing of other parties here, but you found then for a while the opposition were in this position, well, we don't want to be seen to be too friendly to people on the income, uh, on income support either. After 25 years without an increase, why are we seeing change now? Given the pandemic, when a large number of people then started, obviously, losing their jobs because of the circumstances, a lot more people then started to realise just how hard it was on $40 a week and the government realised that finally that you can't expect people to live on that amount of money and they couldn't have some sort of two-tier system where you had, from their point of view, the undeserving, you know, on $40 a week and then the deserving, which is the newly unemployed on a different rate. They floated that boat for, an, for a very short period of time and obviously they've got a real lot of negative feedback on that. The government continues to say they are committed to removing the increase after six months. We can't, no, we can't. We can't go back. And, and quite frankly, who, in, who would want to go back to seeing all those people stuck on 
$40 a day. So what comes next? How does this change the way we see income support in Australia? That's where I think we need to make sure that people are engaged in the debate. At the end of this pandemic process, we're, we're going to have over a million people on JobSeeker. So we're going to need to get, you know, obviously there's the issue around stimulating the economy and jobs, but also strongly assisting people to meet their personal needs. And if the government's genuine about leaving no one behind, that means leaving no one behind and making sure people aren't living in poverty. It's not just going to happen, we all need to work on this, but to make sure we're having conversations about the value of our and the importance of our social safety nets. That was Aidan Dawkins for Undercover. Coronavirus has forced schools to go online. For suburban schools, this reset has been relatively achievable. But what about in rural regions? Jonathan McGrath spoke to Daisy Green, a VCE teacher in Western Victoria, to see how schools that lack resources have been coping with learning from home. When the pandemic hit, our Year 12 class just went pretty much into meltdown. When Victorian schools moved to remote learning in early April, the message was this. If students can learn from home, they must do so. For suburban schools, this massive shift was made easier by the sheer amount of resources available to them. Laptops, iPads, decent internet connection have all been crucial for remote learning to be effective. So what about in schools where these resources are scarce? So we're a regional school, um, a very small school as well. So we have 70 students currently. And yeah, we, I think we are classified as remote. We're in the middle of, I guess, on the Hamilton Highway between Geelong and Hamilton. Daisy Green is a VCE teacher at a small college in rural Western Victoria. This is my third year technically. So I spent a year over in England teaching and I, then I came back to Australia and this is my second year now. At the moment, I'm teaching VCE English, which is consisting of year 11 and 12 combined. And I'm teaching year 11 psychology and 910 English combined as well. Previously, Daisy taught primary school in High Wycombe, a small town northwest of London. While teaching overseas was great for experience, nothing could prepare her for the COVID-19 pandemic. The kids were unsure about everything. I, I guess I was unsure about what was going to happen as well, whether they were going to get their exams in or be able to do SACs as well. For rural schools, the possibility for school-assessed coursework, or SACs, to be completed via remote learning is slim to none. In SAC situations, you need to have you know, that exam-style setting. So at home, you can't, I guess, or across the phone or a computer screen, we can't be telling that as well. So. The biggest problem rural schools face is the lack of technology. We did a survey when we worked out that remote learning was most likely going to happen. I think we had one or two out of the 70 students that had their own laptop at home. We're um, at a remote school, so internet connection on family farms isn't fantastic, so we couldn't really The state that. government announced at the start of April that they would offer 1,000 SIM-enabled dongle devices to students who did not have access to digital technologies. 
However, Daisy's school did not receive any. Technology has never been a core focus of rural schools. Children are more likely to spend their time working on the farm than working at a screen. We're not one of the richest schools, that's for sure. You know, we lack the technology and the resources that I guess a lot of Melbourne schools would have. They've got the resources and the help at school, whereas, you know, their uh, parents are farmers and, you know, they're not always at home. Daisy's role as a teacher now goes beyond the classroom. Her email is open 24-7 to provide students with extra support during this difficult time. We've really tried to be in constant contact with the Year 12 students, just so they have a, a bit of a feeling that, you know, we're there for them and we have to provide a lot more support. But it's not all bad. Where there are disadvantages at rural schools, there are advantages too. In a small school, I guess it's, I'm, I'm really lucky with the fact that, you know, I can provide that one-on-one support to some of my VCE students where they need it. When Premier Daniel Andrews announced that Year 12 exams will be postponed, some pressure was lifted. Our school itself has been fantastic. We've only just found out that Year 12 exams have now been pushed out till December minimum made our lives a little bit easier. Having less students means even with strong social distancing measures in place, students can still come to the school for SACs and exam style settings. We are allowed to have a certain amount of students on site at once for a short period of time. So that's, I think, plan if this stays the way it is for a little bit longer. Recently, the federal government stated that schools are safe from coronavirus, with national health advisors saying schools can return to normal it's now up to the state governments for a decision. For rural schools and teachers such as Daisy Green, this means that the extra pressure may be lifted. Every day is happening as it happens. It's a very stressful situation, but I think the students will get through it. They just need to keep that positive frame of mind, and that's our job at the moment, trying to push them to achieve that. The difference between rural schools and suburban schools is pretty obvious. But the similarities lie within the flexibility of the teachers and the ability to restructure and reset their work. With a new kind of learning comes a newfound respect for the dedication of our teachers. An inspiring story there from Jonathan McGrath. A big thank you to teachers across the country who are tackling new problems every day while ensuring our kids' lives aren't severely disrupted. Speaking of schools, our Year 12 students are handling their most important school year from home. 13 years of education and life all lead up to VCE. It's the pinnacle of high school education. So how are students travelling throughout this pandemic? Tori, Lucas and Kiona are studying VCE. It's a couple of years with a big reputation. Not only are students' lives full to the brim with assessment tasks and exam preparation, but VCE is also an experience peppered with a lot of lasts. Last year at school, last year before the real world, last test, last detention for some, last sport event, last production, high school social, and for most, the last moments of childhood. Because of COVID-19, 
VCE this year is looking very unorthodox. Tori is studying psychology, sociology, English, general maths, human health and development, and legal studies. She has accepted the situation and is trusting teachers to support her and her classmates. Something I've learned is that the teachers have a lot more respect for students than I thought when I was actually at school. They go really out of their way to make sure that we're learning the right way. I think every school is doing its best at the moment in regards to resources being handed out to students. Kiona from John Paul College and member of the CSYMA Youth Academy program is grateful for the help from her school. The teachers have been quite generous with extra resources to support students from working from home, like resources that include extra work and how to cope under stress. And 17-year-old student athlete Lucas from Girton Grammar School has a love-hate relationship with isolation. My school shut at the end of term one a week early and I was happy at the start, but then I realised that I've missed vital school time for my classes, which has made it harder for me with my sacks going into term two, not knowing all of the content. But he's hopeful about teachers supporting their students. My teachers are offering one-on-one tutors and more class time after school to help us students learn more content, which is probably the biggest struggle at the moment, learning the content. With family members having medical concerns, Tori is taking the virus very seriously. My family was very worried about me going to school before it shut down because we've got health issues throughout the family. I was very cautious with going to school because if I were to bring it home, I know that they would be more susceptible to it. The coronavirus is making an already stressful year even harder for students, according to Kiona. Well, the takeaway from VCE this year is obviously going to be very different because we're not really going to have anything that we're going to be able to celebrate and who knows what we're going to be able to do even when we're allowed to go back to school. School is already like stressful as it is and it gets worse as the year progresses. And with COVID obviously hitting when it did, it's kind of like attacked the school in a way that you can't really recover from it unless you obviously extend the school year or have to eliminate sacks. An incredible amount of time, effort and resources are poured into ensuring the results of 3-4 units are fair across the state. It is already a difficult task to achieve as it is impossible to provide students with the exact same curriculum, tools and learning environment. So, There has been a lot of debate over whether VCE will be fair this year under the new learning circumstances. I think VCE results won't be fair this year as people might cheat. I know with the practice sacks that I'm doing at the moment, there's a lot of people that have stuff like hidden because it's through a camera they can't see around the room. So It's really, really easy to cheat. I don't think that the VCE results will be fair because it's inevitable that people are going to cheat. Where there's a will, there's a way, and kids will still find a way to cheat, just as kids still find a way to cheat during sacks. 
So there is the issue of cheating and the lack of regulation of at-home assessments. But something else to consider is if COVID-19 could perpetuate the rift between low and high achieving schools this year. I don't necessarily think low performing schools will have the same resources that the high performing schools have. The low performing schools may not have teachers who are willing to give up a lot of their extra time devoted to the kids who are struggling, such as myself. Of course, these pioneers of remote schooling have acquired some useful new skills which they'll be able to use well into the future. So, while VCE looks different this year compared to others, students have had a unique and special learning experience. Something positive I've seen in the community is everyone being really, really kind to one another. I've been seeing social media statuses and posts just letting us know that we're all really strong and we can get through this. It's been really nice to see the community kind of band together. That was Tamara Clark for Undercover. The cinema space is exciting. It constantly prompts us to rethink how stories are constructed and told to the world. But when all cinemas have been forced to close around the nation, what does that mean for the future of this phenomenon and distinct mode of storytelling? Nick Angus looks into the importance of this dynamic industry, examining how prominent its place in the society is and will always be. There's something captivating and compelling about the cinema. We sit in a darkened room, let our eyes adjust to an illuminative screen, switch off from the world around us and leave our phones to fall down the side of the seat. Here, reality becomes a fantasy, and as we transport ourselves into the story that is shown before us, we lose track of time, space and worry. We start the adventure. It might be exciting, scary, beautiful, confronting, it might be life-changing. See, the cinema is more than just an outlet of entertainment, more than just a mode of socialising or a means of passing time. It is a spectacle, a classroom, a way to connect and understand the world and the people that surround us. Growing up only minutes away from the local cinema, my connection and passion for this space was strong from an early age. Whether it be on weekends, birthdays, or midweek celebrations, I distinctly remember eagerly racing to the box office booth to secure tickets to the latest Hollywood hit. And then we would hunt for the correct theatre door before sinking into our seats to await the trailers and feature film to follow. But see, this enthusiasm for this industry and space proved to live on. Recently, I have wanted to understand more about the importance of cinema in our own lives. Kieran Scallon, who has worked at Village Cinemas for numerous years, shared his thoughts and opinions about this with me. To start, we spoke about how the cinema industry has been affected by the current health crisis, as well as how its future looks. Well, I think it's not a too small of a word to say. Uh, essentially, it's devastated the cinema industry. For a while there, it was just countless films being delayed, uh, countless productions put on hold. Um, you know, we're... we're an industry that is so reliant on content coming to us from others uh, that even if we were to open soon, uh, it's there's not going to be much new content playing for the foreseeable future. The current health crisis has been described as a once-in-a-lifetime occurrence, something that we will be talking about for decades and never forgotten. You know, I've only 
I've, I've just been over eight years in cinema and, you know, I've worked with people who've been here for 20 plus years, 30 plus years, and they've not seen anything like this. Um, you know, this is the first time we've closed our doors in our 60 plus year history of operating. So it's, yeah, unprecedented. There is a distinct moment in film in which there is a reset, whether this be in perspective, genre, or the space between the climax and resolution of the narrative. Much like this moment in film, the cinema space is currently facing this notion of reset, how it may have to reassess its spectator, as well as regain the power and prominence that it has historically possessed once this crisis has passed. Yet, despite the ongoing isolation and constant rise in streaming service viewership, it seems the cinema will bounce back, and bounce back strongly. Audiences want to come back. Um, there, there is a desire to come back um, sooner rather than later. So I don't see this being too damaging um, to, the, to the cinema industry being on lockdown. I don't see the streaming services being too damaging to the future of, the future of our industry too. Um, I've always viewed it as an alternative um, as opposed to a competitor. Um, I, I, I think it's a good thing. I think the more content that we can get out there, the more, the more people we can get through our doors. But there definitely needs to be um, a protection of what people hold sacred, and that's you know the silver screen showing stories in ways that um, can only be experienced in an auditorium. Speaking of the silver screen, there is something quite remarkable about it, isn't there? Very mysterious, almost. And whilst everyone may experience the screen and space differently, there is an underlying importance to its presence in society. It brings people together. Uh, it tells us stories uh, to make us feel like we are not alone and it, it really gives us a chance to escape our everyday lives, um, whether it's just for a few hours. It opens people's eyes to issues that they've never thought about before and, um, you know, it, it can help causes rally support and, um, you know, it gives voices to the marginalised groups of people. And I think, um, you know, for any social change to occur, that needs to be at the forefront of that. It's like this gift that allows you to um, not only find yourself um, and find your place within the world, but see the world through other people's eyes. I often find myself reminiscing on my childhood days and the times in which I would attend this space. Sometimes it seems so distant, other times so close. But it is this form of remembrance that is also so significant, this sense of holding on to the past. There is so much nostalgia associated with cinema. Um, I think a lot of people can remember their first cinema experience or if not their first a very early experience where, you know, you're looking up at this screen that, you know, when you're a child looks gigantic and you're seeing things play out as if by magic. And I think a lot of people bring that with them when they come to watch one of our films. They bring the memories of what cinema means to them and that's, that's what makes it so special. Cinema should really be viewed as, as a guide. Um, for, for all of us to understand what they can do, what they can learn from each other and how they can find you know, the happiness that we're all looking for um, while we go on this journey. So yeah, I think, I think we have something pretty special here and um, I look forward to seeing us reopen and continue to uh, bring that magic back to the world. It's hard to predict how the cinema space will be shaped by the current circumstances in the long run. The world is constantly evolving through this crisis. Yet, as long as we strive to keep having stories both told and heard, and let this magic of the space exist eternally, then we have nothing to fear. 
Now we have to be quiet. The film's about to start. That was Nick Angus for Undercover. The smell of popcorn lingers fresh in my memory and I for one cannot wait for the cinemas to open back up. We have just heard amazing stories from different sections of our society who are finding ways to reset and restart during this extraordinary event. Staying at home saves lives, but it's not unreasonable to feel frustrated when everyday things become difficult to do. Look around for inspiration or share your ways and inspire people around you. It may take a few tries, but you'll get there. Thanks for joining us for our fourth episode of the Undercover podcast. Thanks to our reporters, Katie Martin, Emma Sullivan, Abby Deep, Aidan Dawkins, Jonathan McGrath, Tamara Clark, and Nick Angus. And a big thanks to the producers, Jessica Bolin and Sophie Jacobson, and our executive producers, Tito Ambio and Janak Rogers. Be sure to follow us on social media, Twitter at cover underscore podcast, and leave us a message by calling 0390185005 and share your experiences of this unfolding pandemic. This has been Undercover, the podcast, and I've been your host, Sai Shri. Stay safe, stay home, stay warm. And remember, we are stronger than we think we are. <laughs>